Hi. Hi. This is for our listeners, just so that everyone knows, uh, last episode, the last episode that was released was a little tiny episode because our recording got screwed up. Yeah, I, I, I screwed up. That is okay. It happens to everyone every once in a while. Uh, so we already covered some biography on the last episode, so we don't have to Thank worry about- God. But we did almost forget to mention something. I'm so glad we had to re-record because we totally forgot that uh, we had a special comment on our last episode. Yep. Uh, we got a message from Cecilia Nelson, who is the daughter of Russell Kirk, the author of There's a Long, Long Trail a Winding. And I believe that when I saw the message and when I told you we'd receive the message, we both had kind of the same reaction. Yep. Which was... Oh, God, no. Why? Please stop. Why, God? We were critical, uh, but not to his writing and not to his, not to his story. It was a good story. So she wrote... With the kindest, most informative message I think we've ever received in the, in the years doing this podcast. Do you, do you agree? I don't know. I haven't seen any other messages we've received doing this podcast. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but when I sent you the message, you thought it was just yeah. amazing. Uh, so mm -hmm. I'm just going to read it out loud. It says, uh, she wrote, The character of Frank Sarsfield is based on a real hobo named Clinton Wallace, whom my parents, Russell and Annette Kirk, asked to lunch and were surprised to find had a talent for reciting poetry. A few years later, my dad heard from a prison warden that Clinton, who was there for petty theft, he was nonviolent, would be released if he had somewhere to go, and so wrote to Clinton, inviting him to stay with our family. Clinton lived with us for six years and was very kind to my sisters and me. Sometimes he would disappear and go back on the road and send us kids postcards. When he died, my dad had Night of the Road inscribed on his gravestone. And I just thought that was an amazing story. Yeah. Yeah. And so I wrote back and I asked if, it, if she minded if I shared it on the episode. And she said, sure, it's fine to share. She said, Clinton was a very unusual fellow, almost childlike in some ways and well-mannered. He avoided hard work like the plague and stole, <laughs> from, <laughs> and stole from church poor boxes because he said he was poor. Smile face. Which is, is what... Uh, which is what uh, Frank Sarsfield does in the book. Mm -hmm. um, my dad writes about him in his memoirs, The Sword of Imagination. You might like Old House of Fear that was published in a new edition a year or two ago. It's not frightening by modern standards, but is enjoyable in the gothic romance genre. And I'm just like, Cecilia, Cecilia, what a wonderful message. I don't know if she actually is a regular listener to the episode or if someone pointed her this way or if she just has like maybe a, a Google search set up for her father's name and there's a long, long trail of winding and she just found us. But I think that's amazing. She seems like a lovely person. She really does seem like a lovely person. I was touched and moved. She's my favorite listener. <laughs> She's now my favorite listener. Uh, so that is that. And hey, everybody, I'm Phil. And I'm Willow. And it's, it's Del, Del Toro time. time. It's Del Toro time. It's Del Toro time, everyone. You're still wearing my shirt. <laughs> Which shirt? Oh, I am wearing your shirt. Yes. So, ladies and gentlemen, I showed up at Willow's mom's house today with a bunch of stuff to drop off. And Willow pointed out that... You're wearing my shirt. I'm. <laughs> Somehow I ended up with this shirt. Describe the shirt for our listeners. It has a cuttlefish on it, and it says, let's cuddle. Uh-huh. It's my favorite shirt. I got it from 
the Mid-Continental Oceanographic Institute. If it is your favorite shirt, why have you never asked for it back? I have. If it is your favorite shirt, why have you never asked for it back recently? <laughs> because I forgot you had it. I wear this shirt happily, forgetting that it is not my shirt. You can go get your own version of it. Where can I get my own version of this shirt? At the Mid-Continental Oceanographic Institute. What is the Mid-Continental Oceanographic Institute? 826 Minneapolis. It like works with young writers and... Yeah, works with underprivileged students to help with homework, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um, and you've worked with them. Mm-hmm. They, yeah. they opened a writer's room at South. Yeah, you had a good experience with them. Yeah, they're great. I got to talk to... Uh, Dave Eggers. Dave Eggers, yeah. I got to talk to him. No, you did not get to talk to Dave Eggers. You got to go to a fancy dress party and interview Dave Eggers in front of a bunch of fancy people. We talked a bit, too. Uh, I told him I was working on a novel, and he was very excited. What I was trying to Im- uh, impress upon the listeners, though, is that he didn't just like show up one day and you got to chat a little bit. You were a, you got to like actually sit with him and like talk to him about his career like in front mm-hmm. of people. Yeah. Uh, in, in, in front of people who may be famous, but I don't know because you couldn't remember any of their names. I didn't learn any of their names. <laughs> I bet I, I am to this day curious as to who was actually at this dinner party that you attended. <laughs> it is probably names I know. And I'm so just like, Ugh. there's probably pictures up on their website. There's probably pictures up on the website. But do you know who was not at that party? Who? H.P. Lovecraft. Good. Do you know why? Because <laughs> he's dead. And racist. As we discussed, <laughs> as we covered in the last episode. Uh, but this episode, we yes, we are continuing The Dark Descent, David G. Hartwell's collection of horror fiction. And we are now in a story that I'm sure everybody is familiar with. The Call of Cthulhu. Woo. Woo. Um <laughs> And this is this is such a story. It is such a tale. A tale of madness and strange geometrical shapes. <laughs> geometrical shapes and and monsters who have entered the popular uh, like popular culture, but in a way that isn't actually accurate to uh, the way he portrays them in in the book. Uh, yeah. But but we're only discussing the first part of it, the horror and clay today, because it's kind of a long story. Mm-hmm. And involved. Uh, so once upon a time, the, when we originally recorded this episode, I asked you what your first exposure to the character of Cthulhu was. And you said, my stuffed Cthulhu doll. Mm-hmm. But that's not true. I actually, you actually, and I just, I, I remembered this. You watched the Call of Cthulhu episode of the real Ghostbusters in our old duplex years ago when you were very young. I don't remember it, so it doesn't count. Uh, there was an episode of The Real Ghostbusters called The Call of Cthulhu, but they misspelled Cthulhu on purpose because at the time they thought that all of H.P. Lovecraft's characters were actually under copyright, but they weren't because they were never secured with copyright, yada, yada, yada. Can you even case, spell Cthulhu wrong? They spell it C-A-T-H-U-L-H-U. Cthulhu. Cthulhu. That's, that's the only thing they do differently just to get around copyright. Uh, they misspell Cthulhu, but yeah, it's where like the real Ghostbusters discover that the writings of H.P. Lovecraft are true. They go to Arkham. Uh, Cthulhu rises in the, from the depths. They have to fight Cthulhu with their positron guns. You know, the ghost of Cthulhu. But they have to like electrocute, like electrify a, a, a ro- the roller coaster at Coney Island to send Cthulhu back to the depths. They don't actually defeat him, but they end up opening a portal or something. It's a really Lovecraft-heavy 
uh, a real Ghostbusters episode, but you is watched it. Is this when it. the real Ghostbusters was still good? Yes, yes. Okay. It was during the good era of real Ghostbusters. First season and a half or two seasons. But yeah, you watched it in my in my uh, my bedroom on my computer, which is what you I just remember do. watching the Smurfs in there. Yeah, you used to watch Smurfs a lot. When we weren't watching Smallville. God. Uh, that traumatized uh, me. That third episode. We watched we used to watch bootleg episodes of Smallville that I would get online, get off get off the internet and burn to CDs, which I would then or DVDs, DVDRs, which I would then play on my DVD player uh, on the TV. That's how we used to watch bootleg bootleg Smallville. We never we never finished Smallville. We 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 dipped in like season seven. Once once Lex Luthor left and before Lex Luthor came back, we were like, you know what? Once they started having a lot of sex. Once there was, and plus like the whole season where like Lois or Lana became a witch, it got really weird. Yeah. Yeah, But we never made it to the reveal of like all the Justice League, which was a shame. I mean, we could always go back and. But we won't. We won't ever. We will never. Why? Because because all the all the all the people on Smallville became cult members. I mean, you're right. <laughs> because Chloe became a cult member and ruined the experience for everyone. Speaking of cults, the call of cult Cthulhu, of Cthulhu. <laughs> uh, found among the papers of the late Francis Wayland Thurston. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Thurston is a favorite name between a Willow favorite. and I. A favorite name because between we, who? Willow and I. Oh, I thought you said Olive. Olive. My good friend Olive, the other reindeer. <laughs> uh, Call of Cthulhu. This is this is quite a story. I mean, there's so much. This was originally published uh, uh, in Weird Tales in 1927, um, and no, during in 1928. What during the Great Depression? 1928 episode issue of Weird Tales. Uh, pulp was really big in that time because everyone was depressed. What else are you gonna do? <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna spend a nickel on a magazine and then read all the stories in it. And Weird Tales were long. Like the issues of like when you look at issues of Weird Tales, they were like thick magazines. Like you got your pennies thick. worth. The, yeah. <laughs> and Thurston. Uh, the book starts off. The story starts off with a quote from uh, Algernon Blackwood from his uh, from his short story from his novel, The Centaur. Uh, and Blackwood was a huge influence on Lovecraft. Uh, his story, The Willows, I believe, is the one that Lovecraft said was the greatest weird tale ever written. Uh, by the way, I am using the story as it appears in more annotated H.P. Lovecraft, which was annotated by S.T. Joshi and Peter Cannon. It's just got a lot of great information about these stories. So uh, I'll be tossing out a few a few nibs and blibs of, of factoids uh, as we go along, because uh, even though the story is long, the section we're discussing today isn't terribly long uh so the call of cthulhu is a story told in and it's, it's a series of not a series of letters a series of pieces of information that our character uh francis Wayland thurston has uncovered in a bunch of uh, uh, in a box that was left to him by his late uncle and it starts off with probably the most famous passage in all of lovecraft The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. 
The sciences, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little. But someday, the piecing together of dissociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and of our frightful position therein that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee from the deadly light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. Theosophists have guessed at the awesome grandeur of the cosmic cycle, wherein our world and human race form transient incidents. They have hinted at strange survivals in terms which would freeze the blood if not masked by a bland optimism. But it is not from them that there came the single glimpse of forbidden eons, which chills me when I think of it, and maddens me when I dream of it. That glimpse, like all dead glimpses of truth, flashed out from an accidental piecing together of separated things. In this case, an old newspaper item and the notes of a dead professor. I hope that no one else will accomplish this piecing out. Certainly, if I live, I shall never knowingly supply a link in so hideous a chain. I think that the professor, too, intended to keep silent regarding the part he knew, and that he would have destroyed his notes. That was the first two paragraphs of, of The Horror in Clay from The Call of Cthulhu, and it was read to us by whom? Our good friend Andrew Troth, he is a local actor and writer and narrator of audiobooks. In fact, if you're looking for more works by Andrew Troth, and I will remind you again at the end of the episode, if you're looking for more works by Andrew Troth, his mellifluous tones can be found on audible.com, or he has read a ton of, of books by this point. So just search for him, Andrew, T-R-O-T-H. And not only is he an amazing reader, he is an amazing friend. Yes, he's great. A delightful actor and performer here in the Twin Cities. I have directed him myself in a production of Reefer Madness 11 years ago. That was 11 years ago? That was 11 years ago. He played the narrator in Reefer Madness. That was uh, fun. I really enjoyed that. That's where I first met our friend Rachel. That's where I first made... I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and list all the friends I made during Reefer Madness, but it was, a, it was a fun production, and you helped build the set. I did. Yeah. Uh, so I also on, ate a lot of junk food. <laughs> you did eat a lot of junk food and you watched alvin and the chipmunks on uh our friend avian's phone mm-hmm. she had a movie on her phone which at the time was still pretty novel watching yeah. a movie on a phone so uh yes yeah, so call of cthulhu this is a story found among the papers of the late francis Whalen thurston of boston his uncle has died he was a well what was his uncle uh archaeologist Professor Emeritus of Semitic Languages in at Brown University in Providence. Wasn't he also an archaeologist? Uh, he did. Uh, he was an expert on ancient inscriptions. So yeah, he had a lot to do with archaeology. Okay, I was uh, like, I thought he was an archaeologist. Uh, he was a professor too. Not his uncle, his granduncle. Sorry, uh, George Angel. Uh, we had some discussion as to the actual pronunciation of his last name, Angel, Angel. You and I Angel. talked about this, Angel, Angles. Uh, his name is George Gamel Angel and uh, or Angel, and Angel is the name. Of, Angel is the name of the street where uh, Lovecraft lived as a boy. Little tribute. He has little tributes all around in this story. Um, 
And also they mentioned theosophy. What can you tell me about theosophy? I have Anything? no idea what that means. <laughs> so the, the whole introduction of this book is all about how it's great that one of the greatest things about being a person is that we we've never been able to put together all of our all of our collected intelligence because if we did we'd go nuts, um, uh, and that theosophists are the closest are the people who've come closest to figuring out what's really going on in the world. Theosophy is this, it's a discredited science or like form of thinking that. Uh, has to do with mysticism. The, the the part of the gist of it is that all the religions of the world, all the belief systems of the world, can trace their roots back to one like sort of central form of thinking or central origin. Uh, usually, it's like it's like Mu or Atlantis, places like that. Uh, it was created by Madame Blavatsky. She she kind of helped form the idea behind Theosophy, and Madame Blavatsky will pop up. Uh, throughout sort of weird fiction because a lot of weird writers sort of used her ideas to, to come up with like crazy stories. Uh, her, her, her philosophies were also twisted and warped by the Nazis to become the philosophy of the Third Reich. But Madame Blavatsky was not a Nazi herself, of course. She was not a white supremacist by any means. Just they twisted her teachings of, of sort of like early humans and the origins of, of humanity to, to, for their own like stupid ideas the notion of like the aryan race and things like that like madame blavatsky. we can stop talking about nazis now yeah but when people when people mention madame blavatsky they tend to be like oh that woman who like helped create the third and now that is that's a false she was she had her own problems I mean, she was kind of rad like she was a single woman who like traveled the world like and like had like and like led her own like movement like and at the time that was pretty intense I mean, we don't know if she was a white supremacist or not. We know a lot about her, though. She wrote a lot, and we know what her thoughts and feelings were, and they didn't have much to do with, like, crappy ideas like that. She was mostly just like, no, we came from, like, like angels and devils and stuff. <laughs> In any case, that's enough with Madame Blavatsky. Um, so, yeah, uh, this guy, George Angel, Professor Emeritus, has died. We don't know why he was jostled by a, a black sailor. Uh, on his way uh, up a like up the subway stairs uh, to his home, he, but he was in his nineties, so people were like, "I oh, could have just died because he was old." And it's the nineteen twenties, so um, you know what are you gonna do? Uh, but within so his so this guy the 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 narrator Francis Wayland Thurston is in charge of his of his estate uh, of his estate, yeah, and he finds this box of materials. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see where you were talking about. The American Archaeological Society uh, is wants to get some of these materials, and so he's going through them to see what's in there. And uh, he finds a, a, a as he says, a, a, like a weird clay bas relief, and some quote disjointed jottings, ramblings, and cuttings. Uh, cuttings meaning like newspaper clippings mm-hmm. um, about just some like weird stuff. And he describes the bas relief, and he says that it's like it's it's modernish, but it it kind of looks old. But it's got cubism in it and futurism, and there's hieroglyphics on there. There's a document that is that accompanies it called Cthulhu Cult, and he's like, "What is what is going on?" Like, there's a lot of like just we and like the picture is like of a pulpy, tentacled monster with like wings that's sitting on a thing, and it has like kind of like a it looks kind of like an octopus or a dragon. It's got like a big like in a cityscape behind it. And he's like, I just don't. This is weird and gross looking. And I don't understand what all of this is about. When I first read 
the part where he describes what it looks like where he says uh it reminded me of uh an octopus a drag like i can't remember what exactly the phrasing was yeah uh could you find it it says uh if I say that my somewhat extravagant imagination yielded simultaneous pictures of an octopus, a dragon, and a human caricature, I shall not be unfaithful to the spirit of the thing. I somehow didn't read human, but I read pigeon. <laughs> That's even scarier. So when you said human, I like in the last time we recorded, I almost interrupted and was like, do you mean pigeon? And then I went back and read it and I was like, oh, <laughs> oh. So this is the first time we actually get mentioned in Lovecraft's writing, uh, Cthulhu. And in 1935, he wrote uh, the definitive statement on the pronunciation of Cthulhu. He wrote, The word is supposed to represent a fumbling human attempt to catch the phonetics of an absolutely non-human word. The name of the hellish entity was invented by beings whose vocal organs were not like man's. Hence, it has no relation to the human speech equipment. The actual sound, as nearly as human organs could imitate it or human letters record it, may be taken as something like, and then of course he uses like letters, like accent marks that I do not understand, but it's something like, which the first syllable with the first syllable pronounced gutturally and very thickly the u is about like that of full and the first syllable is not unlike in sound since the h represents the guttural thickness so thanks for clearing that up howard i've ever heard someone just refer to hp lovecraft as howard (laughs) he's just like i'll clear this up for you it's like Got that? It's something like that. And everyone collectively was like, no. Yeah. So there's all these manuscripts and clippings and cuttings and notes and weird stuff in his uncle's, uh, like, magic box or just mystery box. Uh, His great uncle, sorry. But he finds the bas-relief. If you ever want to know kind of what it looked like, all you have to do is look up H.P. Lovecraft's actual drawing of it that he drew himself. He's like, here's what it looked like. It looked like this weird, like, and so all drawings of Cthulhu are kind of based a little bit on this drawing, but the one he drew was a little, like, sketchier and weirder. Is he a good artist, though? He gets the job done. He got the job done. He he looks like someone who's practiced drawing a lot because he had to draw a lot for, like, science articles and things like that. Like, it looks like the draw, if you went to a museum and you just had to sketch, like, a sculpture you saw, that's kind of what it would lo- it looked like. Just sort of a basic sculpture. Um, you can look up Lovecraft's drawing of Cthulhu and like be like, oh, okay, yeah, I can see that. He drew a lot. He drew all of his monsters in his notebook and stuff. They're weird looking. I looked it up. Yeah? Yeah. And? Thoughts? Looks kind of like a turnip. It does. Its body has like the, the scribbles that a turnip would have if you drew a turnip. Yeah. It's not, it's not, he didn't draw it to even look horrific. It's just weird. It's just like, okay, that's unsettling. And there's all these notes about secret societies and hidden cults. And there's this manuscript. And in the manuscript, he talks about on March 1st, 1925, this young guy showed up at his house with this weird bas relief, which was still fresh, like damp Mm -hmm. and fresh. And the young guy was named Henry Anthony Wilcox, um, who is just a young, like eccentric genius who kind of lived in the neighborhood and was was known for like his, you know, he was an artist and just kind of like this young, like thinker. And what does Wilcox tell our friend, uh, Professor Angel? Uh, hey, you should tell me what these hieroglyphs mean because <laughs> I don't know. 
<laughs> and what does Angel say to, to Wilcox? You made this. <laughs> How would I know? You, ma- you, you, you obviously created this just now, like yourself. Like your hands are still covered in clay. Yeah. Um, and this is based on an actual dream that Lovecraft had uh, mm-hmm. about doing this very thing, like creating a bas-relief and going to see like a professor of archaeology and being like, tell me what this means. And the professor, the professor being like, you made this. And what is his excuse? Art is the oldest thing. So like, it's kind of like old because, yeah. because like I made it in a dream. So like, that's like older than reality, man, <laughs> which I love. It's the stupidest thing I've ever heard, but it's the kind of thing that would, it's the kind of thing that would make sense in a really stupid dream. Mm-hmm. We're like, no, like dreams are like older than reality. So in a way, like if I make something in a dream, it's, it's a real artifact. Right. And then I made it for real. Uh, so what happened was there was a earthquake. And when the earthquake happened, Wilcox started having these really weird dreams. He describes them in his little tale to Angel. It was then that he began that rambling tale which suddenly played upon a sleeping memory and won the fevered interest of my uncle. There had been a slight earthquake tremor the night before, the most considerable felt in New England for some years, and Wilcox's imagination had been keenly affected. Upon retiring, he had had an unprecedented dream of great cyclopean cities of titan blocks and sky-flung monoliths, all dripping with green sinister with latent horror. Hieroglyphics had covered the walls and pillars, and from some undetermined point below had come a voice that was not a voice, a chaotic sensation which only fancy could transmute into sound, but which he attempted to render by the almost unpronounceable jumble of letters. And so this description that Wilcox gives of his dream, uh, is our first like real setting of the world of Cthulhu. Uh, the world of weird cyclopean vistas, impossible geometries, and for some reason, a lot of ooze. Like to me, ooze actually makes it less scary. Yeah. Because like that's, I guess we're so used to ooze in horror that it's like, oh, that's just, that's just everywhere. Like that that's makes sense gross. to me. Yeah, like gross makes sense to me. Uh, Geometry that doesn't make sense is scarier. Any kind of geometry. <laughs> geometry is scary. I uh, have my geometry notebook here because you brought it to me. Yeah. And I looked through it and I wanted to cry. Geometry makes me laugh. <laughs> because in my geometry class in high school, I sat next to this guy, Jeff. And we didn't pay attention, but we would tell jokes to each other. And, uh, and he would tell this joke. And it's not funny anymore because of all this, all the horrible things that have happened since we were in junior high. But he would tell this joke that used to make me laugh. That would go, knock, knock. Who's there? Bill. Bill who? Bill Cosby. It's not funny anymore because Bill Cosby is a horrible man. But at the time, he was just an actor. And he would tell me this joke and it would crack me up so much because it, was, because it wasn't funny. Because it wasn't and, a joke. Because it wasn't a joke. It was just a question. And then he would he would tell the answer to it. Also, he would sing the the song from the commercial for this pasta called Dinosaurs. Uh, 
it was this these little pastas that were shaped like dinosaurs and really? he was and the, the the commercial would be uh uh like the dad would be making it or something and the kids would go dad don't eat that or don't make that you'll attract dinosaurs and then the the, the theme song could go dinosaurs those romping stomping dinosaurs and and so we'd be working like taking notes and all of a sudden jeff who sat right next to me but like one desk in front so he actually had to turn around he would go you'll attract dinosaurs dinosaurs those romping stomping dinosaurs and i'd start laughing so geometry is funny to me, but you sound not like the worst students, <laughs> not Lovecraftian geometry. It was our geometry teacher's first year to teach. And the first day of school, she said, I'm a new teacher. This is my first, this is my first class ever. And she lost control of that class that very day. And she you never, never say that she never gained it back. It was the worst thing. And what's funny is her roommate we, I had for another class. So I had two first or like, I think her roommate was her second year, but she was like, oh yeah, we were roommates in school. And she also lost control of her class. Yeah. You can't show weakness to children. But she was a better teacher. Physical science. Destroy you. Physical science class. I hate children. Yeah. I never want to be a teacher. We were horrible. We were horrible. We had this other teacher who lost control of class. She was a young teacher and I I just want to, point out to my listeners, the listeners, that I was not part of this. I was a good student except for the dinosaurs thing. But I had another teacher. It was her first year teaching. And she was like, she would go, if the class got disruptive, she would go, you guys need to calm down. And people wouldn't calm down. And she would go, if you guys don't calm down, I'm going to open the, I'm going to open the cabinet and get out my Uzi and shoot all of you. That was how she tried to get it was really upsetting. Like she was very upsetting because she would laugh and she cried a lot in class too. I don't think she was ready for teaching. I don't I think like, anyone who threatens children with a gun should be allowed to be a teacher. She'd be like, huh? Don't, don't make me get my UC. God, that was I'm a weird su- class. I'm I, surprised she didn't. <laughs> I don't even remember what class that was. I don't remember what that class was. I just remember her. I remember everyone in that class and what where we sat, but I don't remember what the lesson was. That was a bad class. I was surprised no student ever went home to their parents like, yeah, my teacher threatened to shoot us all. Oh, we didn't do that back then. We didn't do that back then. I, for- I forgot that that was a different era it was a different era we didn't complain about the horrible things our teachers did we suffered in silence and then we went to therapy okay uh so what were we talking about so this guy wilcox has been having weird dreams but angel is professor angel is like this kid is mm, interesting so he would invite him over and interview him about these dreams because they're fascinating and they're all about cyclopean imagery and weird uh, chanting and these weird sounds. Uh, he says, a, a subterranean voice or intelligence shouting monotonously in enigmatical sense impacts, uninscribable save as gibberish. And that's what I was referring to. My favorite description of anything ever is it's not even a sound. Enigmatical sense impacts. It's this 
un incomprehensible something that's impacting your senses that we're like, I guess I'll just describe it as sound because that's the closest thing human beings can come. That's what I love about this story is that you're supposed to take away that Cthulhu is from some place or some idea that we don't even have the senses to comprehend. And that's what gets lost when we talk about these creatures is that we can't even perceive them. <laughs> it's like, have you ever read the, did you ever read the story Flatland? No. About the creatures who exist like in two dimensional space. And if something from the third dimension intrudes upon the second dimension, like the two-dimensional space, like they can only perceive like a cross section of it because it's three-dimensional and they're two-dimensional. And there's a Doctor Who episode like that. Yeah, and so it's just this weird, this weird thing that changes shape as the three-dimensional object passes through two-dimensional space, and you're like, what is this thing? And so like that's kind of what Lovecraft is trying to describe with these creatures, which is they exist at a higher dimensional level. So when we see them and hear them, we're like, what is this thing? We can't <laughs> comprehend it. That you missed the visual of me doing it, but it was awesome. Like, it's awesome. So people don't really go insane in Lovecraftian stories. It's just like their senses are like overridden by a thing they're not supposed to be able to perceive. I already can't handle normal senses. <laughs> yeah, there's too many of them. We should... We should Combine the the more useless ones into like what are the useless ones. A taste and smell. Taste. Combine those. They already kind of are combined. I know. So just combine our noses and our mouths into just one like snoot organ, and then we'll like that'll save us a lot of time. What? <laughs> and maybe like like hearing and seeing. What if we had just some kind of weird ear eye? What's the other sense? Touch. We need that though. So one day, so on March twenty third, Wilcox doesn't show up, and uh, so Angel calls Wilcox's family, and they're like, "Yeah, it's weird. He went into a coma." They say coma. It's not really a coma. He has moments of consciousness, lucidity. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes he talks. I mean, comas are weird. Uh, as someone who works with, you know, works for an organization that deals with brain injury, uh, comas are strange. People, it's not, it's not being asleep. People can do things in comas because comas comas are weird. Man, comas are very weird. But I'm not going to get into that. Um, and then on April 2nd, Wilcox wakes up and everything's fine. Mm -hmm. And that's it. And people are like, oh, well, that's, that's weird. And so what Angel starts doing is investigating the time period between when Wilcox first started having the dreams... Mm -hmm. and the time he went into the coma and then woke up just sort of to see if there were any other like weird things happening around the world time to see our second remarkably racist moment of the day we just kind of brushed over the first one the the the, the black guy who who bumps into him yeah yeah it, it's mildly racist compared to like some of the other stuff the and uh, the racist stuff in this book uh, tends to be stuff that's racist in a typical pulp fiction of the era kind of way, mm -hmm. like a the natives are restless tonight kind of way, and not like Lovecraft spewing his bile and fear of anyone who's slightly different from him kind of way. Uh, so that's why I always forget, I mean, because I am white and 
super privileged, I actually have the luxury of forgetting that there is as much weird racism in the Call of Cthulhu because I'm just like, oh yeah, that's just weird tales racism. <laughs> that's not Lovecraft actually like being a harmful idiot racism. <laughs> that's just typical harmful racism that's in weird tales. I love it. But you know what? It's important to read this kind of stuff, not just because it has a place in, in fiction history, but because... By examining the way a, a person's prejudices and bigotries and racism inform their writing, mm -hmm. we can examine our own prejudices and bigotries and, and fears and racisms in our own creative endeavors. Like, yep. Lovecraft's is so obvious, and we know the way his mind works because of all of his, like, personal writings, that we can compare it one-to-one. -one. We can be like, ooh, this is how his, like, this is how the horrible things going through his head manifest themselves in his fiction. Mm -hmm. And then we can apply that to our own writing and our own creativity and be like, I can keep this in check or I can examine my own my own prejudices and make sure they don't inform all of my writing and help me become a better writer or, you know, performer or singer or songwriter or musician or whatever. Consuming an artist's product means you inherently consume their biases and political views. Yeah. Whether you mean to or not. Just look at the Harry Potter series and look at mm -hmm. the horrible woman who wrote them. <laughs> yes. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't be able to consume the art you enjoy. Yeah. It's just letting yourself acknowledge the shortcomings and the terrible things that the creator did. Yeah. Did turn it said. Turn it into something positive. That's what art is. Which is what has been happening with Lovecraft. Mm -hmm. Low these last, especially in the last decade, with uh, with writers of color, uh, LGBTQ plus writers, uh, writer marginalized uh, writers, uh, exploring Lovecraft's work directly, Lovecraft's work, and turning it on its head, and not just being like I'm a weird tales writer, but I am specifically operating within the milieu of Lovecraft, and I am turning the writings that came from his diseased mind into something of beauty and empowerment. And mm -hmm. and I think that, that like, to me, that's just one of the most amazing things uh, is is all the work that 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 people have been doing. And when we're done with with Call of Cthulhu at the end of the whole episodes, I will have a few recommendations uh, mm -hmm. for writers because there's just a lot of great there's just there is so much great stuff out there right now. But yeah, so Angel starts exploring and seeing what else has been going on. Oh, the 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 earthquake that kicked all this off was based on an actual earthquake uh, from February 28, 1925, that Lovecraft experienced and wrote in his diary. House shakes 9:30 p.m. Do you think he had the dream that night? He did not. He did oh. not. They're from different times. Um, but he did experience an earthquake. So uh, so what does Angel discover on his on his investigations? Uh, people, specifically artists, kinda kind of went bananas. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them even got locked up in a mental hospital. Yeah. I say yeah. mental hospital. They were not great back then, so maybe that's the proper not the proper term. So all these creatives start having weird dreams and deliriums and they don't realize this is happening because no one's compiled all this information. But between February 28th and because April 2nd. they're about as good as communicating with each other as the CDC is with the United States president. Also, it is the 1920s. Yeah. So they weren't posting this on like message boards. I um, should reverse that. As the United States president is 
With the CDC. CDC, yes. Um, it says average people in society and business, New England's traditional salt of the earth, gave an almost completely negative result. Those scattered cases of uneasy but formless nocturnal impressions appear here and there. But so scientific men, men, science, scientists, a little more affected, but it's the artists and the poets who just were like, Aah! and started having these visions of a gigantic nameless thing that shows up. Yeah, one guy goes violently insane. It says around the same time that Wilcox uh, went into a coma uh, and expired. No, he didn't kill himself. Yeah, he just died several months after incessant screamings to be saved from an escaped denizen of hell. What's the unfortunate part of of the reporting? What what where where does the weird racism come in? I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> uh, because of because the poets and the thinkers and the scientists are experiencing this. And and having these bizarre dreams and hallucinations, but the people who ex also experience it but become bothersome and and wild are people in South America, uh, voodoo voodoo practitioners in Haiti, uh, people in Africa, uh, people in the Philippines. Certain tribes become, quote unquote, bothersome. Oh, but also uh, a theosophist colony goes nuts, which is weird. Uh, so, you know, there were some white people that, that went a little crazy in California as well. Can I just can I just go out and say, screw H.P. Lovecraft? Yes, you can. <laughs> can I just say that? <laughs> okay. And, oh, yes, uh, a bunch of uh, New York policemen were mobbed by hysterical Levinites. Uh, the Levant was the collective name for the countries on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean from Egypt up to it, including Turkey. Uh, here, the term refers to the many Jewish inhabitants of New York. So basically anyone who wasn't a white New Englander went quite bazonkers. And a, an Irish, Irish painter uh, hung a blasphemous dream landscape in the Paris Spring Salon of 1926. So people just, people just went a little off, a little off. And Where do you think we would fall in those categories? Like, not like the racist categories, but like, would we be the scientists, the normal people, or the artists? I think I would have woken up one morning and maybe a peed the bed. You do that anyways. Yeah. Feed the bed again, dear. What about me? I, I think... already have nightmares. I was going to say, uh, you would have been like, had another nightmare, and I've been like, yep. I would have been like, I saw another nameless creature, and by saw, I mean I heard it scuttling around in the dark recesses of my mind again. <laughs> so yeah, uh, I don't know where we would have fallen on the old uh, on the old Cthulhu scale, but we would have fallen fallen somewhere. Fallen asleep. The point of all this being that Professor Angel put all this information together. His great nephew Thurston followed up on a few of these that he where he could find the people involved and was like, okay, like this is true. Like he didn't just make all this up. Uh, no one seems to have realized all this was happening because my great uncle was the only one putting two and two together. But okay, so he compiled a bunch of information. He got this weird Cthulhu bas relief from a an, a young artist who dreamed about it. Uh, the words Cthulhu Fatan, Fatagan, Brillier sort of appeared uh, floating around in these visions. Uh, there's a cult maybe involved, uh, theosophists, but don't really have enough information yet to come to any kind of conclusion. All we know is it's weird. Oh, look, here's a manuscript by somebody named Professor, uh, Inspector Lagrasse. But that's where we'll pick up next time. Lagrasse? He's a real pain in Lagrasse. 
<laughs> I'll tell you that. What a right. funny joke we made. We did make funny jokes. Thurston, Legrasse. Everyone hates us. Everybody. I'm not surprised we get hate comments. Oh, nobody's listening at this point. We lost That's our last fair. we lost our last listener years ago. We the first episode, someone listened and just left. It was like, nah. Uh so yeah, so we'll pick up next time with uh, the tale of Inspector Legrasse, which is the second part, and this is where things start kicking up into like more action movie territory. Uh, things get a little gorier, things get a little uh, wiggity weirder, and people start dying, and we start getting some actual forward momentum in the story of what is the Cthulhu cult. Um, but before we sign off, there's a little Le- Guillermo del Toro news. Ooh, little Guillermo del Toro news. Remember that guy? Remember that guy, Guillermo del Toro? The podcast's namesake. The podcast namesake. I did change the title of the podcast from a Guillermo del Toro podcast to a Guillermo del Toro adjacent podcast. So, nice. so that 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 gives us a, gets us a little bit off the hook. Uh, Guillermo del Toro. Um, first of all, if you haven't, I don't know if if anyone is is, but on Netflix, uh, Wizards just dropped. I watched begin- some of it. The beginning of the final part of the Tales of Arcadia series. The next part of that will be dropping soon. Uh, I don't actually know how much. Guillermo del Toro has to do with it anymore, but I know that it still has his name on it. His Pinocchio is getting made. The cast for that was announced. It sounds like it's going to be weird and dark and adults only. He has a new series starting on Netflix. 10 After Midnight, a new horror anthology is coming out. So that should be, I mean, it's Game of Toro Presents, so I don't know how much he actually has to do with it. But upcoming an- American an- horror anthology web television series going to premiere on Netflix. And uh, yeah, so there's a lot of like Game of Toro and Game of Toro adjacent projects sort of in the uh, in the pipeline. Yeah. And of course, as we know from the past, Game of Toro, huge H.P. Lovecraft fan, worked on At the Mountains of Madness for many years before having to abandon it. But he has announced that he would like to get it started up again. So who knows if At the Mountains of Madness will get made. It'd be great if it did. I liked the the penguins that we saw at the exhibit. Yep. So that's it. Uh, Willow, do you have anything else to add before we sign off today? Andrew. Andrew Troth, thank you again, Andrew, for, for doing these delightful readings. We'll be hearing more of his, his voice in the upcoming episodes. Uh, if you want to find out more about Andrew's work, go to audible.com and search Andrew Troth, T-R-O-T-H, to find all the books that he has narrated. Uh, he, is, he has been the narrator of the Tom Keller series, uh, The Vegas Fay Stories, which are a, uh, a series of, of contemporary fantasy, uh, urban fantasy tales about, about the Fay. So, uh, yeah, I think it looks like he has narrated oof, at least six of those. Uh, so, yeah, check him out. If you like urban fantasy, if you like, if you like action and adventure, listen to the Urban Fae. Uh, just to hear Andrew's voice. I don't know anything else. Uh, so thank you, everybody. I'm Phil. And I'm Willow. And we'll see you when it's, it's Del Toro, Toro time. time.